Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Dr. Sonia Greitma, who serves as Vice Provost of Leadership and Graduate Studies and Dean of Global at Trinity Western University. Sonia, welcome. Tell me something good. Oh, Scott, I've been looking forward to this. We've been planning this for a little while. There's so many things that are good right now, but you know what? You brought up your screen with this beautiful shot of the West Coast and uh, uh, Indigenous canoe with uh, with with paddlers, and that is good. That is just this reminder of this beautiful place that we live in. There's a windstorm going on right now, so I'm. It's good that I haven't lost power, but uh, good thing to be living living on the uh, Pacific Coast. Well, one of my favorite passages is the wind blows where it pleases. <laughs> so we'll see where, 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 where the wind will take us today. To begin with, Sonia, can you just talk a little bit about the various roles that, that you get to play on a day-to-day basis? Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a few uh, roles that's hard for me to keep track of sometimes, honestly. My official uh, title, as you said, is Vice Provost of uh, Leadership and Grad Studies at Trinity Western, as well as Dean of TW Global. Uh, I'm the Senior Health Advisor because of COVID, and uh, I'm also the President of the Canadian Association for Schools of Nursing. Those tie all together in the sense that they're all uh, roles in taking, uh, providing leadership through uh, higher education, um, bringing in a health lens uh, where necessary, but mostly focusing on on uh, high quality education. So it's, it's a multimodal role. And I, are you teaching this fall term as well? No, no, this is the first year actually that I'm not teaching. So that's a strange feeling to not be having any classes to be going into this year. I've been at Trinity Western for 13 years. I was uh, in the School of Nursing and was the Dean of the School of Nursing until last summer. And then last summer moved over into the Provost office and have taken up the senior administrative roles. So let, let, let's start there. I, I, I want to ask a question. This, this may be a little playful, but let's, let's, let's see if we can make, make, make this work. There, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a Dutch term, hoidhonger, which means skin or touch craving. And it's a word that's really emerged in the, the Netherlands of late because of the context of the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, have you experienced hoidhonger? In, in the context of as your roles are shifting. That's interesting. Now, of course, that you're talking about the, the need for touch, which is really pretty significant in the, in the world of COVID. I, I don't know that term, which is also, I'll have to look that up since my, uh, my, my family's Dutch. Yeah. Uh, so I, that, I'm curious about that. Have I experienced that? Um, I, I don't know about touch if they're meaning you know being able to hug or shake hands that yeah. kind of thing but if it's more about having a physical interaction with live people yeah oh my goodness yes that is you know when, when we went through the the early part of the 
COVID crisis in March when we were in uh, everyone working from home and just uh, staying with our immediate families, how excited we were just to run across neighbors outside. We stayed physically distanced from them, but just seeing uh, live people. And, and we've, I've noticed the same too, when the university started opening up the summer to allow a, a little bit more uh, socially distanced, physically distanced uh, interaction, how great it was to see just live people in the flesh. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's a thing. Yeah, I think that's a real thing. And I think it's something that we're facing, whether it's in the classroom or playing the roles that you get to play in supporting quality mm-hmm. exchanges in the classroom. That takes a lot of work. And that takes, in some ways, being in and around people. I know that technology creates some affordances in our, our ability to connect. And we're all living in these little boxes right now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to I step back from the, the efficiencies or the innovation, if you will. Just talk about well-being. Are there things that you're doing right now to take care of yourself? That's a great question. I think uh, I'm trying to be really intentional about that. And so right now I'm, I'm working from home. I actually uh, work from the office at, on, on campus three days a week. Uh, being able to be at home a couple of days for a week is good for me, for my well-being, uh, just to have it uh, be able to make sure that you know, supper's going, laundry's done. That sounds strange, but those those mundane tactile activities are actually I I really I really value. Uh, that's been helpful for me. I've, I've become more intentional about exercise, getting outside, uh, going biking. So I've upped the exercise. I'm careful yeah. about diet, those kinds of things that you would expect a nurse to say. Yeah. But uh, getting getting enough sleep. Uh, I don't know that I would have made it through the um, the, the intensity of the last number of months uh, without um, being able to make sure I had enough rest. That's a big one. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw out some of the things that I'm learning or I'm, I'm struggling to learn. And I I just want to get your response. So the Mm -hmm. first one, taking a break does not mean I'm a failure. Oh boy! Yeah, no. <laughs> we we had we had a research uh, symposium on cam- or well, not on campus, you know, a virtual one with ninety uh, ninety or so uh, participants at Trinity Western a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and I loved this um, research that uh, Bill Strom uh, has done, Dr. Bill Strom from um, from Trinity on resilience during COVID, and uh, he. It, it, in that, in his resistance work, that it was really interesting to find out the necessity for things like taking a break, the necessity for things like, uh, well, really what, figuring out what you need to do yourself, what a break looks like for yourself. How about growth can still be found in stillness? can still be found. Oh, hasn't that always been the case? Uh Yeah, the growth can still be found in stillness. For me, honestly, Scott, I'd have to say that growth has almost only been found in stillness. Because to me, that means uh, when you say that word, and I'm I'm still looking at your screenshot here of of the Ocean Passage, 
the, the idea of being able to slow down, have some quiet, uh, time with your, uh, with your own thoughts. And I've always been someone to believe that the, um, relationship comes, the, the necessity, the necessity of relationship, uh, comes out of that, uh, a stillness. Now that's, that's going to sound like a strange thing to say, yeah. but the, um, I, I've, I've thought of the importance of, uh, you know, having the quiet time to connect with God, um, having uh, the, the making time to connect with others, and then the stillness of being able to reflect and think about um, who I am, who God wants me to, to be, where God wants me to go. That's, it's, it's that stillness that is the time when I listen most closely to what I um, think God is trying to tell me. It's, it's it's stillness and listening. They both go. They both go together. Okay, uh, two more just for fun again. Um, mm-hmm. It's important to be patient with myself while I adjust and adapt to new things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Scott, you you might remember the uh, well. I, I think you've been in a couple of meetings where I've talked about my sister-in-law, who's a uh, palliative care manager, and we've been talking about COVID and what that's meant for her with her um, overseeing palliative care and hospice care. She reflected that there have been three phases that she's seen: COVID crazy, uh, COVID clarity, and COVID compassion. And so she talked about the time, you know, and, and it it's, fits with what my experience has been and it seems to fit with what we're going through at Trendy Western as well. The COVID crazy in the early days, we didn't know what was going on. We had this high adrenaline and a lot of nervousness and we, um, uh, everybody felt on edge. Then we slowly moved into COVID clarity where we uh, started figuring out, you know, public health started figuring out, the scientists started figuring out a little bit more about this this virus and how to manage it. We started developing plans and protocols. We had, a, you know, 12, uh, 12 task forces at Trinity Western to figure out how we were going to uh, return to learning in the fall. Uh, and and then then we you know by August we needed to uh, transition to COVID compassion and what I mean about that is being intentional about the very thing that you're talking about being patient with ourselves being patient with with others uh, if, but being intentional about that because I don't know about you when I'm tired and and trying to manage all of these COVID things um, I'm on edge. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, 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 uh, the, I, I am not patient with myself or with others. And so it's, you know, the stillness fits into it that I guess too, it's taking a deep breath and saying this, this is, this is a strange time we're living in. I, there's, there's no one that I've met that's living, that's been through, uh, through a pandemic. And if, if they have, you know, my, my father-in-law was born in 1918. So, uh, he, he was around during those times, but you'd have to be over a hundred. And so this is this is new to us. Everything you know, everything that we do each day is is um, is is new. We're we're novices at living, not just novices in learning how to fly the plane. We're novices at getting out of our house in the morning, of going to the grocery store. That all takes so much energy. And so when we get to the real complicated things that we've we feel that we've been prepared to do, we've been teaching a lot of years, you know, things that we're used to, um, 
that the more complex things are even that much more complex and we come to them tired. Right. Um, weaving our way through that continuum of being COVID crushed to mm. COVID confident, there's mm. dynamics. Mm. I'm calling it riding the Corona coaster. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is my last question or statement. Comfy clothes makes uncomfortable times more comfortable. Huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, I think that the the opportunity for comfortable clothes is uh, yeah. is working from home, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes. So that's that's probably true. Uh, I, I I still have to be attentive to. We all. Well, I mean, I still try to be attentive to to what's going on in front of the screen. Um, I, I sometimes get thrown off. We probably are all that way that we we forget that we're. Um, visible and it, when, when we're zooming and uh, I, I had an experience a couple of weeks ago where I was uh, I was zooming into a uh, as giving a presentation and afterwards the participants showed me some photos that they had taken you know in the room I had no idea how many people were in the room I thought maybe 10 or 20 it turns out there were um, this was a, 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 a group in China there were probably about a hundred people in the audience and the photo or the screen of me had to have been, you know, 10 feet wide and eight feet high. Uh, yeah, I didn't like that very much. Um, realizing that uh, I, I was glad I didn't, I wasn't wearing the comfortable clothes, assuming that nobody was going to be seeing me. But right. uh, it, is, it is nice to have that option more often, for sure. Well, I think in some ways, and I think your point is well taken. I mean, these are emerging modalities by which we are communicating, interacting, and working with each other. That means mm-hmm. there's a set of protocols and how we could be both polite, hospitable, and attentive in, in Zoom. You know, everything, should I have my camera on? Can I turn it mm-hmm. off? What is my background? I'm going yes. through a whole set. Like I, 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 I subscribe to a service called Stitch Fit, which means once every three months I get a box of clothes and I get to pick to see, ooh, do I like this? Do I like that? Or do I send it back? And it works really well because I'm not a big fan of shopping per se, but, you know, and, and, and every fall it's always this, you know, this thing, you know, school's about to start. I'm going to, I need my new school outfit, right? <laughs> and so actually I got a nice box of stuff that, I actually really liked, and most of the times I don't like what's in the box. Well, I like a few things, and I always have to say, but everything that was in the box this time went, ooh, I like this jacket, and these shirts are work, you know, but I'm like, do I need them? Can I justify them? Will, will, I, will I actually wear them? Because, you know, I always have to counter the value proposition of, you know, because this stuff does cost money, um, but I'm wondering, as as we think about it, have 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 you been in a conversation or framed what is an appropriate protocol for wearing and what we are wearing when we're in, let's say you're on the executive leadership team or you're in a board meeting or you're meeting with the global leadership team or you're meeting with your colleagues. Have you thought about what is the protocol? That's interesting. Yeah. That's, I, I think, you know, being a woman in leadership, uh, I, I've, I've come to believe that that women have more um, have 
more things to pay attention to with their dress. We have more options in some ways, but trying to figure out what the appropriate attire is is a is something on the minds of women in leadership in any case. Right, and right, right, right. right. So, yeah. so you know the. Um, the idea is just on that point that when when I was asked, you know, two or three years ago, some or maybe longer, to to speak on International Women's Day about women in leadership and, and what was what did I find difficult about uh, stepping into that role, uh, or into being seen as a as a leader in a formal role? And I said, um, being seen and being heard. You know, the the uh, I think um, many women that I know uh, can relate to the idea of being more comfortable to be in the background and listening and more comfortable in the background watching than being the one uh, being listened to or, or, or being watched. And so the, the being watched, being looked at, if you're standing up in the front of a, you know, it can be a classroom, but it can be a, a broader audience to say, what are people seeing when they look at me uh, is, is on, on the minds of, of women a lot. So attire, then you bring that to the Zoom uh, world. And I think there's the added complication of what's behind you as well. You know, are, are, are my kids running around behind me or, you know, is, is dirty laundry behind me or, uh, you know, so there's, there's the attire, but there's also the, you know, the room around. And, and, I, and I think it's a similar question to say, how do I look professional in a role that calls me in, in, in a zoom meeting that calls me to be professional. So, uh, I meet with the every other week with the pre, um, executive director of the Canadian Association for Schools of Nursing, and uh, we're all meeting from home, and we're all dressed up. Yeah, there's, there's we've known each other for a long time. There's no reason for it. We 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 could wear our t-shirts, but I think there's something about still respecting the role and the and and maybe it puts you into that mindset as well. You know, when you when you have a have a jacket on and you're um, you're dressing the same way you would if you were meeting um, in a boardroom. Uh, it's, it's a visual reminder <laughs> of, of the purpose of the meeting and, and the persona that you have to be bringing to that meeting. Okay. Well, that, that, that helps me. I, th I think I'm going to decide to keep, keep, keep these outfits. Um, I think, I think I need to up my oh, game. <laughs> so again, we're, 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 we're at Learning Matters, a, a bridge to practice, and I, I want to walk into a little bit of, of the practice of scholarship, your practice of, of, of teaching, and, I'm, and again, I want to try a little something because that's what's fun about this podcast. I get to try some things, thinking about your background in, in nursing and also thinking about how one gives feedback in a classroom setting. So you might call it the bedside manner, but sometimes we have to deliver news that folks may not want to hear, but they need to hear, right? So mm -hmm. how one approaches this. So I'm I'm going to read. This is this is a um, a little uh, meme or statement that's been making the rounds uh, on on the internet, and I want to read it to you. Then I want to get your reaction on how we might unpack this in terms of providing feedback. So it goes mm -hmm. a little bit like this. Student says, "I don't understand why my grade was so low." How did I do on my research paper? And the teacher responds, actually, you didn't turn in a research paper. You turned in a random assemblage of sentences. 
In fact, the sentences you apparently kidnapped in the dead of night and forced into this violent and arbitrary plan of yours clearly seem to be placed on the pages against their will. Reading your paper was like watching an unfamiliar, uncomfortable people interacting at a cocktail party that no one wanted to attend in the first place. You didn't submit a research paper. You submitted a hostage situation. <laughs> so I may have felt like, wow, I, I would have liked to have wrote that in, in my notes and my responses at some point. There's a poignancy and a truth to it. Um, mm -hmm. But I more than likely would not respond that way. <laughs> Talk to me about how you go about providing what I would like to call coach quality feedback. And does your um, training and your experience as a nurse, does that shape what you do in terms of feedback for students in the classroom? Well, that's interesting. I haven't put those two together that I can think of. So uh, it makes me think that one of the courses that we used to take went back, you know, 30 years ago when I was taking um, my bachelor's of nursing was communication course, therapeutic communication. It was a, you know, first or second year course where we, where we did learn how you, you know, how you sit and how you speak and how, how you Turn your head and your voice. You know that those are all all things that we that certainly were part of uh, communication, part of nursing school. I, I think when I think of what I've learned, the experience that I've learned the most from in terms of of how and when to give uh, uh, feedback to students and our coaching was when uh, I was at the University of Lethbridge and uh, we were switching from uh, traditional didactic teaching to. Uh, problem-based learning or context-based learning. And uh, so I, I had been teaching there for a little while and I had been teaching like a intercultural course, uh, intercultural nursing course in, in a traditional way, in a classroom, speaking in front of the classroom. And, and I really loved it. And, this, you know, I, I love teaching it. And um, I love the learning that I had from the students when we were engaged together. Um, but, but the university then switched to problem-based learning and we were, instead of didactic with me at the front of the classroom, we were, I was no longer instructor, I was tutor. And we were in small groups of a, ma a minimum of eight, maximum of 12, and I was a tutor of three groups. And the, um, in those groups, we, I wasn't lecturing anything. We had case studies that the, that the the groups were had to work on, and then we would layer them, add something to the case study the next week, send the students out to work on that, add another layer the following week, send the students to, out to research that, and uh, the the focus was on the process. What was really interesting and un first uncomfortable, but then fantastic, was uh, that we were but part of the process that we were expected to do is I I had to at the end of every. Uh, lesson or every every class time together so let's say 90 minutes together towards the end I had to go around and um, give comments to every single student about how they did <laughs> so there was no there's it's not like a report card you know grade eight report card where you could potentially write the same thing in every students because they don't see what you're saying to other students so it it, it forced well, they were all they were all hearing it they were oh, listening yeah, every, it was yeah 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 yeah. yeah yeah so so if I say uh, you know, Jane, uh, this is what I really loved about what you did. And this is what I think you need to work on. It had to be kind. It had to be accurate. Uh, and it, it had to be um, uh, saying the things that the other catching the things that other students were 
listening to as well. You know, just knowing other students were listening in meant that I couldn't just be superficial. I better be accurate. So, uh, and then at the um, midterm and the final, the students had to do that with me as well. They had to go, they had to all tell me how they thought I was doing in front of everyone. Oh, there you go. So they, they had to learn that skill too. And, and, and what we said was there should be nothing, no surprises in my course evaluation. There should be no nothing that I hear in the hallway from this group that we haven't already talked about in the group itself. So the, the, the I, I think there was an expectation since it was a, a nursing course that we, we had to develop and use the skills of figuring out how to have tough conversations in a, kind way uh, and and in a meaningful way that would actually um, be a good use of our time. I think though that might be a good trifecta of frames, kind, accurate, and meaningful when you have to give tough feedback. I like that. Right. Right. <laughs> um, let's walk back a little bit. Was there, or could you talk about an influential teacher, and this could be either in the classroom or out of the classroom, who was an influential teacher in your life? Well, from a university perspective, I probably, in, in, in each degree, there's one that stood, stands out for my undergrad. I, I don't need to go through all, all of those, but certainly for my undergrad, it was a, a woman called uh, Melanie Lutenbacher-Webney, and that's a, uh, she taught um, public health in my fourth year, I had zero interest in public health. And I, I really wanted to work in, in the children's hospital and oncology. I loved the, the, I was in Calgary. I loved, it was a beautiful hospital. I, I loved the, the approaches there. And that's really where I thought it would end up. Uh, but I did admire the way that uh, Melanie uh, talked about the importance of public health in a, in a bigger view. Never thought I would use it, just thought it was interesting. When I graduated, I, I worked in a hospital for a little while, but um, went almost immediately up north to, to a place that looks very much like your, your screenshot here, yeah. to a, a First Nations community where I was an outpost nurse. And I realized that all of the things that she had taught me that I thought I would never have a reason to use, I was using every day. And I wrote her you know, this was before the internet. So I, I wrote her a letter, had to figure out what her address would be, wrote her just, just to thank her and to say, you know, I am using every part of the four years of my undergrad education every day in the kind of work that I'm doing here in a single nurse station, a remote village, a fly-in place, an island uh, where I'm doing everything from, um, uh, you know, basic diagnosis and treating of common ailments to emergency response to home visits to bigger plans about the wellness of the community. I'm using everything that I learned, and and I thanked her for that. And that that was my purpose was just to thank her. But then she got back in touch with me, and and this was my first experience of a, a professor ever doing this outside of um, outside of the class. Said, next time you're in Calgary, look me up and we'll have coffee. And, and, and so I did. And, and we had coffee. And we talked through things. And she said, I think you should, I'm going to put your name into, uh, I'd, I'd like to see if you could do some teaching here. And so, you know, when I was back in Calgary, then I ended up doing, that's where my teaching started, where uh. she saw an entry opportunity for me to be doing some teaching in a, in a nursing skills lab, a health assessment lab, fell in love with teaching. Uh, I, I continued to do public health while I was teaching. And uh, and that really shaped the direction of my uh, of my teaching and learning from there. So thanks, Melanie.
when you go about the process of designing, it could be a course or it could be a learning activity. I'm interested to talk about the process that you go through. I, I, I want to ask specifically about um, an, a learning activity that you designed, but you could take it in another direction. You know, full disclosure, our team has been helping the School of Nursing put their program, their master's online. And you, some wonderful faculty we, we've, been, we've been working with. And one of the uh, learning activities they were adopting or adapting was, I, I call it a, a cartographic depiction of, of nursing styles in history, where you have the synchronic, if you will, the, the spirit of a particular age, but the perchronic, the, 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 uh, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the formats. And it was, it was a really interesting map that, that you had created. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that comes to mind, if you want to talk about that or how you went about framing that particular learning activity. Mm. So you might be talking about, was it, you know, that the chronology of nursing, the development of nursing over time? Yes. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that one came at my kitchen table on a napkin. It was really one of those kinds <laughs> of things. I, I had been asked shortly after uh, or about the same time that I was moving to, to Trinity Western, I'd been asked to speak at a, a Nurses Christian Fellowship um, uh, uh, conference. And uh, they wanted to know about nursing history. And I know that, you know, so this was maybe 20 years ago, I don't know how long ago, but a while ago. Um, they, to, to, to try to come to an audience to say, why does nursing history matter? To say, ask nurses, why does history matter? It, it, just like I have to go to historians and help them to understand why nursing matters. I have to go to <laughs> nurses to say, why does, why does history matter? And uh, I, I, I sat down and thought, well, so what are these various... Um, turning points in nursing. If I was to, to talk about, you know, how we how do we get from before Florence Nightingale, something five, you know, 2000 years ago, all the way to, um, to what's going on today. And uh, so I ended up just, you know, sketching out a, a matrix. I, I went to the conference and, and that was a side thing. I was really focused on other things about nursing history. And um, at, at the end of the conference, the things that I went to talk about, I don't know that people paid any attention to, um, but they all said, can we get a copy of this matrix of this, uh, of, of how we, that really makes sense to us, how these um, different, um, uh, like the, the, how the values of nursing changed over time, what different, different, um, different contexts like that. And um, I ended up uh, publishing that in the journal of Christian nursing, giving some shape to it. And, uh, and in the meantime, you know that's two decades ago. So it, I I've added two um, uh, two columns to that to you know the 2010s and the 2020s. It, it's it's a nice way to give a pathway to um, to help people see where we've come from and where we're going. And the the funnest time that I've ever had with that matrix, I've, I've used it in classes a lot, and that's always fun. But I was asked to um, to on very short notice to give a talk on history to. Um, uh, what is it? So the Canadian Association for Schools of Nursing, Western. It was, so it was a lot of nursing nursing educators from uh, uh, BC, Alberta, and um, and Manitoba, Saskatchewan. And because it was short notice, someone had dropped out, so they asked if I I could come and speak on nursing history, which was wonderful. And uh, and what was especially great is that I because it was in Calgary, 
there were a lot of uh, my, some of my former professors, certainly some of my colleagues uh, were in the audience. And I knew that this one column that was from the 1980s, they would, it would resonate with them because that captured what, what nursing and nursing education was during that decade. And then if you see yourself, if you recognize yourself in, in that uh, decade, then it, it makes more sense to move backwards from there or forwards from there because you can say, oh, okay, nursing has shifted over time. This is, this is why, you know, the, the, the fact that we, st- I don't, I've never seen um, a nurse in Canada in a, in a white uniform and a cap, you know, since I graduated like 30 years ago. And yet everybody recognizes that, um, yeah. if you, in a cartoon, if you want it, want it to be a nurse, you're going to put a white dress. It's going to be a woman and she's going to have a, a cap on. So to say, how do you, why has that endured and what along with it, what does that, that mean? What are the values that have underlied that? Where did they come from? And, and what have we held on to and what have we, we valued the most and, and what have we let go of? And what does that say about, you know, recognizing that the period that we're in right now is also temporary. So we might think that right now, you know, it's evidence-informed practice is the big thing uh, in nursing right now. You, you, but then I remind people in the audience, uh, whether it's students or, or else, else, else otherwise, is uh, that's new. We didn't have that term 10 years ago. Well, maybe 10 years ago now, but certainly not 20 years ago. And so we had other things that we were basing as the value of nursing education. So if this evidence informed now, let's then take that and imagine what's it going to be in the 2020s and the 2030s? Are are the things that we're seeing that are starting to show a shift to things that we hold on to as being normative that actually won't be normative in nursing? And how much control do we have on shaping the future because the past is not, um, the, the present is very much different from the past. Yeah, um, I, th- I believe it was Lenin who said that a decade can go by and very little happens. But sometimes in the context of a week, a decade worth of stuff can manifest. Mm-hmm. He probably didn't use the word stuff. Mm-hmm. This particular moment in time has created an amplification, if you will. I'm wondering if you can speculate a bit, not only the field of nursing, but also mm-hmm. higher education or education as we know it, particularly not only because of COVID, but there are other fields of forces at play right now, and particularly Black Lives Matter, Me Too movement, some mm-hmm. of those injustices and systemic oppression and systemic racism that have been built in these systems are mm-hmm. being called out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see the shift? And it's hard to speculate in the future, but I'm going to ask you, wh- where do you think we're going? Where can we get to? Where do I think we're going? Ooh, where do I, I hope we're going? There's well, where I hope going. we're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you were going to say, and one more. Oh, and, you know, just because in the context of Trinity Western, we, we are rooted in a critical faith perspective. And that shapes, mm-hmm. I think, where we hope kingdom coming is coming. So, I, big question, probably too big, but... Wonder if you want to take that baton. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it, I I love that that um, nursing has been grappling with this for a while, yeah. and so that's helped to help to shape the discussion. So what we're talking about now, with uh, I think the word that you used, amplified, makes that that makes good sense. They're amplified, but they're not new. These aren't new concerns and new issues. And so uh, in in nursing, you know, if you you may recall 
and, and I'll just use nursing as, an, as a springboard um, yeah. because it's what I understand the most, but you, you, you may recall that uh, nursing was a highly gendered profession that, uh, you know, you, you look at the, at any photos from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, it's all women in Canada, all women. Uh, not only that, it's all white women. Not only that, it's all single white women. And that's not the case anymore. So what shifted and, and, and what are we learning from that? And what are we taking forward that's allowing us to um, uh, be prepared for, uh, for these amplified moments, Black Lives Matter as, as a good example. Uh, we recognize in, in nursing in about the 1970s, about this, the same time as the uh, women's movement was really coming to the fore, uh, there was, were questions about, um, well, there were all kinds of questions about nursing education as, as a whole, but one, one thing was to say, so if, if we're, why, why is this just for women? Why can't this be opened up to men? Well, part of why we couldn't open up to men was because, well, one, the white dress uniforms was one thing, but that was, you know, fairly easy to change if people were, were good with that. But also nursing education was based in hospitals and the hospitals had residences associated with them. The nursing schools were uh, nurses living in residences, all female dorms. If you wanted to open this up to men, you had to make some pretty significant structural changes and, and, and financial investment just to get them in. There were laws that had to change about, you had to, you had to have new living quarters. You had to change the rules about um, who was allowed in and, and out. Uh, the, the, you did, if you wanted to open up to married women, what happened then? Could they, do they live at home? Do they travel back and forth by bus to, to do their shift work? Can you ask them to be doing as much shift work as we were in, in that style of education? So to me, that's a, a really um, clear example of where if you want to make that shift in that in that case from an all-female profession to one that's men and women uh, there's some uh, you have to invest the money in it you have to be able to recognize where the barriers are and and you and you have to see not the, the physical barriers that are the most expensive there but there's then there's the cultural barriers of, of um, uh, patients being uncomfortable with having and not being familiar with having a, a nurse who wasn't female so patients had to get over that um that or make that cultural shift i guess as well and and then um to to deal with the questions about what is nursing anyway and is it is it about nurture uh is it a compassion and you know florence nightingale said those are the um, the basics of the values of nursing are are um compassion and nurture and, and she said those are female traits that's why men should not be in nursing because men don't have those traits. So how do we make all of those shifts? I figure if we could get men into nursing in the 1970s, uh, these other um, in, inequities, uh, we're, we're well prepared to figure out how to how to do better on on, on all kinds of and all kinds of ways in, in higher education. Well, Sonia, we've reached the part of the show where we're going to spin the Yara wheel. You, you ready to give that a spin? Okay. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? Well, somewhat appropriate. Which historical figure do you most identify with? 
Oh, good. Good. Uh, there's a woman called Clara Preston, and she was a Canadian missionary nurse who spent uh, most of her life in China. I identify with her not because I was a missionary nurse in China, but because I always wanted, you know, when I went to, to school, as a, to nursing school, I wanted to be a missionary. I, I wanted to be a missionary nurse. So nursing and missions seemed to fit well together. What I love about Clara Preston is that she was completely unknown outside of her immediate family. And uh, when I started uh, doing nursing history as a, a scholar, in a, as, um, as my research, starting my research program as a PhD student, uh, I had the opportunity and, and continue to have the opportunity to bring um, ordinary women and their voices and their experience out into public. So I'm, you know, just finishing up my third book on on Canadian missions and, and nursing in China, and that and, and the greatest joy for me has been to um, give this in some ways back as a gift to the family members. So so Claire Preston, her her um, nieces traveled with me to China a few years ago. Um, they we got to see some of the places where where Clara had worked, and. Uh, so when I say I relate to her, it's probably more to say I, I admire. I, I, I admire her, and as a as a as a relatively young nurse in a um, uh, you know when I when I was doing my my PhD, not working at a at a um, public institution without having a a, a lot of other um, connections with uh, Christian nurses. It, I, I there were there were some around, but I didn't. I, I had this longing to be understanding. Um, and learning from nurses who were Christian that took their um, figured out how to integrate their faith into their practice, and so studying missionary nurses and reading their letters from the 20s and 30s and 40s, in reading, being able to read those letters gave me some, uh, 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 I don't know, a friendship in a way, if that makes sense, to be able to see someone struggling with some of the same questions that I had while living in a very um, in wartime, a difficult time, and. Uh, learning from her, so in this case, Clara Preston, how she drew on her faith and how she lived out her faith has, um, has been tremendously valuable for me over the years. What, what's the name of your, your upcoming book and, and when, when can we expect it? Well, I can tell you what the name was until I heard from the editor this morning. Oh, now, the, oh. now the title is, the title is up, up for grabs. Um, that's the title uh, as of yesterday was the Rockefeller effect, uh, Canadian missions and the unsettling of modern nursing in wartime China. Yep. As of this morning, we probably still have the same subtitle, but, uh, but we'll have a different title. So the Canadian missions and the uh, unsettling of nursing in wartime China. So in the retitling, is will you go back and forth? Will you present some ideas? Are they going to present some ideas to you and you'll the negotiation will ensue? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I took so much. It, it, I was so happy landing on that title. It made so much sense to me and helped to guide my writing while I was, was finishing up the book. But I can see from their perspective, it doesn't make as much sense to them as it made to me. So they've given me a couple of uh, their editorial team met yesterday and they said, no, this title doesn't quite make sense. So they've they've given me a couple of ideas and have asked me to mull over some other ideas in the meantime. So in a couple of weeks, hopefully, hopefully I'll have some big brainwave uh, and uh, have a new title in a couple of weeks. 
Um, earlier, you were you were talking about the difference in it, whether it's the newness or the experience. You have been part of a task force that's worked really hard and how we are going to create a welcoming, hospitable, experiential climate for our students coming in. We just finished doing um, a three-course bundle for uh, first-year students. Um, the argument I wanted to make is that all students and teachers coming into learning this fall or some sense, first-year students. This is somewhat new for all of us. So, Juan, thank you for the efforts of you and your team. Amazing work. What are, what are some highlights as to what you had to think through to implement for what is going on, particularly at Trinity Western University? Well, a big highlight to start with is that uh, the, the public health team that I'm working with now and that we got on board uh, are were both students of mine. Oh, and yeah. so uh, one, one was a master's student and the other one uh, was an undergrad student who, who went on and did her master's after. So, so to be able to work really closely with uh, um, students who I knew or who are women and uh, fabulous uh, experts and in healthcare and public health that, uh, that I knew as students has been like tremendously rewarding. It means that we've just been able to cut to the chase a lot. We don't have a lot of preliminaries in our in our um, discussions. We just go straight to the heart of things. Um, so I, I think though the we from May seventh till August seventh, almost almost daily. Uh, parts of our bigger team was meeting the health and safety task force, which involved about twenty five people. From buildings and maintenance, from um, from the wellness center, from um, uh, from from human resources, from student life and residential care. So we we had to uh, cross we this cross pollination of a of a whole big group uh, working together to try to figure answer the question: How do we safely bring students back to the campus uh, campuses? In, in fall 2020, how do we do it in such a way that reduces the spread of uh, COVID-19 and how do we prepare leaders to be uh, um, uh, moving forward in a safe way and making safe decisions? Uh, it was probably one of the hardest things that I've been involved with. And of course, as often is the case, I know it's going to be end up being on, on my list of one of the most rewarding uh, that, that we, we were we were more than knee deep every day, grappling with brand new things, knowing that we had to uh, we had to base our thinking on principles, and uh, because the rules and the regulations weren't there, the, the there's it, it's it's just pioneering and and having lots of conversations with lots of people and uh, trying to figure out the best way forward. I'm I'm really proud of the work that was done by the task force and. Um, I, I also really love that now we have I have connections with more people in the university that I wouldn't um, normally be working day to day with, and it's given me a, a great appreciation for the uh, for the different parts of the university that are there and that are working together, and also just the uh, incredible commitment and energy that uh, that people have put to making sure that we can do this safely and successfully in the fall. Yep. Well, we know we're taking steps, and we've worked through crazy the chaos to um what was the third one yeah com compassion covid compassion. crazy covid uh clarity yeah. covid compassion well i would really like to encourage you at some point you and your team to to to, to write about this 
And maybe you can frame it collective care and action, being careful and full of care as we move forward. Because Sonia, thank you so much for the care that you take, the full of care frame that you bring and the leadership that you're providing, not only to our campus, but also to British Columbia and if not global, there's some big impacts and ripples. So thank you for your work. Yeah, likewise, Scott, it's it's, uh, great working with you. Yeah. I've, I've I've so appreciated what you've been uh, what you've brought to Trinity Western as well. So looking forward to more work with you too. Well, wish you the best of well being. <laughs> and um, again, you've been listening to Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm-hmm.